Good morning. A couple years ago, I had a chance to go to Myanmar. And when we were working with a group of pastors in Myanmar, we had a, a down day. And on that down day, uh, we went to a couple of sites. We went to a, uh, I guess it was the largest reclining Buddha in the world. It was a huge shrine to Buddha. And as we walked up to that shrine, uh, obviously feeling uh, despair for so many that would, would worship a false god, uh, one of the interesting things that I saw there was that around the platform of the Buddha, there were these, I'm sorry, around the, the, the area there, there were these little six, eight inch tall platforms. And I asked the lady who was a believer who was with us, and she said, those are platforms when the monk come to pray that they are in elevated state. So they pray, you know, or meditate six inches above the rest. And, and I filed it away as we saw guys come in. There, there appeared to be this hierarchy. And it was a little disturbing. Um, but then we went back to the back and we got to walk through the monastery. It was open and, and we walked through the back. And, and you know, basically this monastery, don't imagine what you've seen in the movies. It, it was in an urban setting, so it was just a collection of small uh, houses that the, that the, or, or lodging areas that the monks would stay in. But my, my vision of Buddhism was crashed as we walked around the corner into one of the rooms and there were like six monks standing around a little TV watching a talk show. <laughs> I said, this is not what I was expecting. This is very, very different. And the, the, the guide was explaining that men oftentimes, it's appropriate this is Mother's Day, but men oftentimes would make a pledge to go live in a monastery for, for a month or for longer. And it was regular to have women outside the gate that would be standing there begging for their husbands to come home to, because the moms were left home with the kids. And I was like, if that isn't the ultimate sort of man cave bailout, <laughs> that these guys just, you know, to go seek peace, I'm going to go dedicate myself to the monastery for a month. And they would come out. And so we went from there to the Shwedagon Pagoda, which if you've seen pictures, it's this large golden tower. And as we walked around this pagoda, there were all these shrines and idols. And there were a lot of people, a lot of Westerners, that were there just sort of meditating or, or sacrificing on altars. And I remember walking around um, just processing through this, that, 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 that in Buddhism, the, the goal is to extinguish yourself of of desire, that basic, basically the path to avoid suffering is to detach yourself from anything so that there's, there's really nothing there close enough that would hurt you, that, that nirvana is the idea of extinguishing desire, that that's the, that's the heart of Buddhism is the idea of extinguishing myself from desire. But as I was walking around, I was thinking this is a pretty self-centered way to view the world that how do I avoid suffering? And, and, and what comes out of this to the Buddhist is a general feeling, a general compassion for all things, but nothing that, that drives you with a desire. And, and so I saw people who were self-focused. And I think if we look at most of the world's religions, there's an inherent self-focus that we come to whatever deity that we come to. The idea, if I do this, 
I get that. If I behave this way, then I expect these results, whether they're temporary results or whether they're long-term results. And what's interesting is, is, is even if you look at Americans that go pursue these other religions that go to investigate Eastern mysticism, it's usually with the idea of I went to find myself or I went to find peace or it's, it's all about the person. And, and I think what's interesting is we tend to struggle with this in the American church as well, right? This in some ways, if we're not careful, can be the mindset of American Christianity. It's the premise of of the prosperity gospel. It's the premise of this idea of, of have your best life now. We have a tendency to be independent and to think of our faith as, as an individual thing and as a private thing. The self-focus that are driving many young people who are deconstructing today is this idea that, well, I'll take Jesus and I'll take a form of Christianity but I'm going to do it separate from the church because the church is the problem. And I think you and I could observe and acknowledge in a room of a couple hundred sinners, there's some problems in here and we can, we can bristle against each other. We can have some real conflict. Some of it's petty, shallow conflict. Some of it's big, big problems. But, but the idea of a Christian without a church, a Christian apart from culture, a lone ranger Christian doing on his own is foreign to the Bible. There's no category for that. That our faith is a personal faith, that, that, that I stand accountable for God for my own faith, you stand before God for your faith, but ultimately when we make that decision, we come into a community of sinners. There's no category for a lone ranger. We are made to be in community. And that's hard sometimes. Uh, it can be challenging. Sin is a reality, and when we live with people in the church, there's going to be conflict. But we have to live with one another. We have to apply these kingdom principles that Jesus has been talking about throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We have to apply this with each other. It's easy to give assent to these ideas now when the rubber meets the road. How do I live this out? both inside the church as a community and outside with the culture around us. How do we live with others? And so I think, I think our temptation, my temptation, your temptation is to want to be selfish. It's to want to withdraw, to keep things as simple as possible. The more connections I make, the more messes that I'll be involved in, and it'd be much easier for me to just worry about the people that live under my household. But God calls us to something outside of that. And what's interesting is He's not going to leave us hanging. He's going to explain to us, Jesus is going to teach us how we live with other people. We're going to look at Matthew 7, 1-12, and, and, and Jesus is going to turn this focus of the sermon really outward. He's been outward before, but now He's especially going to turn it outward as He speaks to our heart and our attitude and how we uh, speak to others. Um, First, he's going to address our judgmental attitude that I've got a problem. There's something in me that causes conflict with other people, and it's my critical spirit. So he's going to address my critical spirit, but then he's going to show me how to confront someone in their sin without being a hypocrite. He'll move from there with, to, to how do we 
react to those that are hostile to the message because believe it or not, there are people out there that don't believe what we believe and they reject it. So Jesus is going to explain to us how we can handle that. He's then going to bring it all back around though to point to our dependence that ultimately we do this. Our relationship with Him is the guide. Our dependence on Him is the guide for how we navigate these relationships. And then finally, He's going to sum it with, with an image that I think is helpful for all of us and is really an outworking of how we love our neighbor, what it means to love others. And as we work through this text, what I want you to notice is how Jesus makes clear that our faith is not an individual pursuit alone. That the principles of the kingdom that we've been talking about over the last several weeks have to be applied in the context of a community. So let's look at chapter 7 in verse 1. Jesus says, Do not judge that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you'll be judged, and by the standard of measure, it will be measured back to you. Do not judge. This is quite possibly the most quoted Bible verse in, in the modern era. Um, you hear this everywhere. Uh, and, and it's probably also the most misunderstood passage in all of Scripture. Um, most people, when they say Jesus said don't judge, have this sort of half-hearted Jesus was saying live and let live. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. You don't take my inventory, I don't take your inventory. Do whatever you want. There's really nothing that's wrong. And, and so the, 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 in the eyes of most modern humans, we tend to look at these words and say, this phrase, don't judge, must supersede everything else that Jesus said to, to, to have this text applied in our modern culture. To a postmodern world where there's no absolute truth and everything is relative, this statement has become a mantra. And, and basically what they're saying is that no one is qualified to evaluate whether someone else, else's actions are right or wrong. Don't judge. You're not qualified to tell the difference in right and wrong. But we got to look at the context of, of what Jesus, how Jesus says this. That word judge, crino, it can mean to analyze or evaluate, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that we, that we should never analyze or evaluate what's in front of us. Uh, later in Matthew, later in this chapter, Next week, John will look at a passage where he'll warn us to discern false teachers. He's going to warn us that we have to obey his teaching in verses 24 to 27. And then later in Matthew 18, he's actually going to give us an entire process for how we deal with a sinning believer. So I don't think Jesus is saying here, don't judge. Paul's going to say in Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone caught, is caught in a transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In Hebrews 3, the author says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called a day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So clearly, Jesus is not making a blanket statement here that we don't pay attention to what's going on around us that we don't analyze or evaluate. Um, 
Krino can also mean condemn or avenge, but that is a category that the idea of condemnation or avenging is a category that's reserved for God alone. And you would say, why? Why do we not personally have the opportunity to, to sit and, and to announce condemnation or to sit and announce avenging? And, and I would say the problem is you and I are not omniscient. Uh, we're biased. We're sinful. We don't have the ability to look objectively. And uh, just in the last chapter, in the first part of chapter 6, Jesus spent a whole time talking about how we tend to look at the outward. That if you and I were to make judgments, we would overly focus on the outward part. And Jesus, through this whole sermon, has been pointing out that, that what's going on on the outside doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on in the heart. That what God wants is our heart. And you and I, it's impossible for us to see into someone's heart. And so we do leave that level of judgment to God. But, but even if we are not ultimate judges, because that's God's domain... Uh, we notice the tense of the verb that, that he says here. Basically, it, it breaks down to the idea of stop judging, stop your judgment. Um, it's in the present tense. And, and so Jesus is saying, stop, because he knows the heart of the people listening to him. I know my heart. I know your hearts. We all struggle with this. It's hard to turn it off. And so Jesus says, stop your judging. He knows that it's an ongoing struggle. And so I, what I think Jesus is, is talking specifically, he's, he's not talking about this ultimate judgment. What he's talking about is our tendency to fault find. It's our tendency to look down on other people. It's our tendency, you know, in this context, it's the Pharisees, the external measurement of all you do. It's our tendency to look just at what's going on the outside. We might do it. It's, it's the idea of, of external correctness with internal corruption. Why do we evaluate other people's parenting styles? Why do we evaluate other people's family dynamics? Because what that leads to a lot of times is a comparison and insecurity in our own decision-making process. But then it, it leads to condemnation of other people in the community. It's difficult. Why do we feel the need to evaluate whether other families send their kids to school? How many hours a week they watch television? Uh, sort of a, hey, did you see so-and-so was doing this? Can you believe that? What kind of car they drive? Antonia's uncle was a pastor, and, and they had saved up money and were about to buy a Toyota Camry that they had saved for. And, and his daughter married a pretty well-to-do family, and that family said, hey, with the money that you were going to use to buy that Camry, we have a, a three-year-old Mercedes-Benz out here. We'd like to just bless you. Just pay us what you were going to pay for the Toyota Camry, and it can be yours. And I remember talking to Antonia's aunt, and after about a year, they ended up selling that car. Because they were just like, they felt like people's eyes were on them all the time. Now, knowing the whole story, you and I would say, man, it'd be foolish not to make that investment and, and buy that car that's far more valuable for far less. But others tended to look with an outside expression, not knowing the entire story. Now, I know, I see you guys. I see your eyes when I roll in each week in my 2000 Lexus. So I know you know what I'm talking about. But why do we do that? Why do we tend to 
uh, feel the need. It's, it's almost like we have this sense of entitlement that for some reason everybody needs my input. Everybody needs my questions. I need to be evaluating every single situation that I'm possibly prevented in. And it's, it's tiring. It's exhausting. I have to tell my heart, just chill out. You're not responsible for that other thing. So I think Jesus is talking specifically. He's not, you know, we value critical thinking. I'm an engineer. I want an engineer that thinks critically about a design that he puts in front of him. We're not talking about critical thinking. We're talking about a critical spirit. And, and, and that line is a sliver thick between those two things. That I could say in, in 25 years of marriage, I have had countless times that I've discouraged my wife when she's come to me with an idea and I just immediately go into it. Well, did you think of this? Did you think of that? Did you add this? Did you subtract that? And, and it's just crushing to have that constant evaluation held over your head. None of us want to live under that. How do you feel when other people do that to you? When people who don't have the whole story of your life feel the opportunity or the need to give you input. And I'm not talking about concerned input from someone in your life. I'm talking about just that, just the, the grenades that get lobbed over the fence every once in a while. Why do we all feel the need to criticize? So I think when Jesus says, do not judge, that's what he's talking about. He, you know, I have to work with my critical spirit to turn off constant evaluation of things that aren't my responsibility, to, to turn off the tendency to, to take other people's inventory, as my grandma used to say. Turn off the arrogance that assumes that they need my input. That, that to be able to turn that off is actually an act of grace that it comes with humility that God cultivates in our hearts, that we put aside the superior attitude. And, and really the big idea is there's no loving concern. Again, if it's a loving concern that we sit down together and talk through, that's one thing. It's the pot shots. It's, it's judgment isn't the characteristic that's to define us. We shouldn't be known primarily for our judgmental attitudes. And, and Jesus says, lest you be judged. Or you, uh, in verse 2, for in the way that you judge, you will be judged. Um, I was reading in a, in a Spurgeon devotional. He was saying, you know, typically the people that are the most critical, that the areas that you're the most critical of others tend to be, you, you create a critical attitude back towards yourself. From them, there's, there's a human element of this that none of us want to be around critical people. And typically, if someone's critical around us all the time, we kind of backspring that critical nature. So Spurgeon said, if you're a person with a critical spirit, you incite others to look at you in the same way. But, but he's shifting here from the command, do not judge, to the passive, you will be judged. It's a divine passive. It's, it's not really talking about the human judgment. That's a, that's, a, that's a byproduct. It's talking about what's coming back at you. Verse 2, um, 
in the way you judged, you will be judged. And that's the standard. You know, Paul talks in Romans 2. He, he basically says the fact that you're able to judge someone demonstrates the reality that you know the truth. So I would say to you, first of all, if you're going to be a judgmental person, you better be consistent in your own life. James 2, for judgment without mercy to, uh, for judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Back in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, the idea of measure here, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Um, th there was a Jewish proverb based on grain that basically said, uh, the measure for the sale is the same as the measure for the purchase. So when you come and buy grain for me, we're going to use the same scoop to measure the grain as we are going to do to measure your payment. So there's a, a severe warning here that whatever level of critical judgment you pass at others, God's going to point back to you. The standard by which you love others or by which you judge others is the standard by which you will be judged. And that's scary. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eyes, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how do you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And when you see clearly, take the speck out of your brother's eye. I think it's important that we notice here. Jesus goes from don't judge, don't have a critical spirit to the reality that there are times we do need to go visit with our brother about a sin. One commentator said, though, that the harsh judge is a play actor who assumes the role of a spiritual physician when in reality he himself is a patient sicker than the one he intend, attends. If I'm a person with a critical spirit, that makes it almost impossible for me to correct and confront someone who's in sin that needs my help. That, that I've got my own illness in my own heart that precludes my ability to help others. So Jesus says, take the log out of your eye. You hypocrite, you're a play actor. If you're dealing with your own sin, you're not willing to deal with your own sin and you try to remove this speck out of your brother's eye. That's hypocrisy. The image is silly, right? You walk into an eye doctor's office to get Lasix and he's got a beam, the word is beam, he's got a beam coming out of his eye. So that not only can he not see to help your eye to remove this speck, but he's going to mash up the room and hit you in the head as he's trying to do it. It's humorous. But that's what it's like. When we've got sin in our own life that we're unwilling to repent of. Because, by the way, we tend to give ourselves a pass. We see sin in other people and it's like, whoa. We sin in ourselves and we tend to give ourselves, we tend to excuse ourselves. It's not that big of a deal. God, we wouldn't say it explicitly, but God loves me enough to overlook this in me. But man, that problem in that other person's life, they need to deal with it. But he's saying, no, that, that I need to, to deal with my own sin. And the image Jesus gives at the end here, he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll clearly see to stake the speck out of your brother's eye. It's, it's a beautiful image. It's a loving image. Uh, if you remove your own log, uh, then you'll be able to talk about this thing. That if I have 
confessed and seen God deliver me of a sin, if I have confessed and walked out of this sin, how, that now I'm actually not just, it's not just not hip, hypocritical, but now I actually am able to go to my brother with a speck in his eye and to say, hey, let me sit down. Let's talk. Let me love you. Let me help you with this issue. A couple years ago, I had a student in, in the program I was teaching, and we had to remove him uh, from the class that he was in. He had made some bad decisions, and as a result, we were going to remove him. But when I, when I met with him, I sat down and said, hey, I want you to know that I love you. And I want you to know that this thing you did, it doesn't move you beyond any sort of redemption. It doesn't move you to any sort of, you know, you're, you're not beyond redemption. We're not kicking you out of the church. I need to remove you from this program, though, because we need to deal with some things in your life. And I tried to be as loving and as gentle as possible. And I looked at him and I said, hey, here's the thing. I'm asking you to step out of this program, but I'm going to walk through this with you. I'm not offering less of myself to you. I'm actually willing. Let's ramp up our meetings. Let's talk through these things. Let me come alongside you and help you. I had no desire to, to tarnish this guy or to throw him out. That, the idea is, is restoration. A lot of times when we use words like church discipline, it's the idea of banishing someone. What Jesus is imaging is this tender, let me remove this speck from your eye that you can see better but that I've done that after looking at my own heart. It's actually a beautiful picture. It, the idea that we would live assuming the best with each other and that when you have sin in your life or an issue that needs to be addressed, that I would think about our time together, I would pray actively for you, and I would come to you as, as a guy that's in the trenches with you, willing and desirous to walk through this together so that we can be restored. That's such a different image than judging. That it's constructive. It's not retribution. But what's interesting is, is that not everyone is willing to have the speck removed. Jesus goes on in verse 6 to a challenging passage. He says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under feet, and turn and tear you to pieces. Some people have seen this as, 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 as a denial of the gospel to the Gentiles because in chapter 10, Jesus, is, when He sends the disciples out, He tells them not to go to the Gentile regions. And, or, or in chapter 15, he, he says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But Matthew clearly includes the Gentiles in the Great Commission. And Jesus includes the Gentiles in His message. That, that what He's talking about here, most likely a look back to chapter 5, verse 11 and those who are persecuting the Christians. People who fully reject the gospel in all ways at all times. And it's not just a simple rejection. This is the idea of those who reject the gospel with scorn and contempt, that they're hardened to the gospel. They're hostile to the, gar to the gospel. You know, dogs, dogs show no discernment between table scraps and meat that's, that's set aside uh, for sacrifice. They're going to eat table scraps and they'll move straight into the food that's, that's supposed to be a sacrifice and they won't miss a beat. And so Jewish wisdom was that you don't feed a wild dog because that wild dog actually may stalk you and follow you home and then attack you for more food. And so it's not just the idea of a rejection, it's the idea of those who seek 
your ill. For pigs to get pearls. Pearls are this precious item and you don't put it in front of the pigs because they'll just trample it. And, and almost the idea that they'll not just trample it, but when a pig bites into a pearl, it's going to be pretty hacked because it's going to get a couple broken teeth. And so the, the image of, of pearl to the pigs or, or the meat to the dogs, is, it carries this idea that, that they treat it with disdain. They treat this precious thing with disdain. And you and I carry a precious thing in the gospel. We carry a precious thing in our ability to sit down and lovingly confront someone. Most likely what Jesus is referring to is what He's going to say later in chapter 10. If anyone doesn't welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. I assure you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for them. Or in Acts chapter 18, it says, The Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and they went to Iconium. Proverbs 9.8, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. There's this idea under continual rejection, continual disdain, where we move on. But I think we have to be really... Then in a lot of ways too, it's, he's probably applying this even to the Pharisees. The, the, who, the Pharisees and the Jewish audience that are listening, they've had the Old Old Testament. They're expecting Messiah. They know all about Messiah. Here's Jesus who is the Messiah. And even with that, they should have clearly seen based on the law and the prophets that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet, as we walk through the rest of the gospel, we're going to see a hostility and a disdain for Jesus that will ultimately lead him to the cross. But this is not a place we go quickly. You know, we don't go down to the square, share the gospel with somebody one time and then say, I'm done. That's a pig. I got pearls. I'm moving on. And I would say it's, it's not ever a place we go to unless we're certain that what we're seeing is disdain or rejection. We don't go here from struggle. Two years ago, we went to Ecuador to have the first graduation uh, with the Wadani. The Wadani are the people, the, the, it's the tribe that killed Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and the missionaries in 1956. And we had the opportunity, they, they had graduated their first class from the Bible Training Center for Pastors. And we went down and, and spent a week there and had this graduation and spent time uh, with the Wadani. And I was struck a little bit thinking about their story. I think about the death of those five missionaries, that they were speared after spending weeks circling and getting food, even took one of the guys up in an airplane ride. And then they experienced one day hostility as a group came and speared them on the beach. And part of me is thinking, man, if that's not an example of, of needing to move on, of hostile rejection, then I don't know what is. But if you follow the story of Rachel Saint, who was Nate's sister, and Elizabeth Elliot, they went back in. And what was uncovered was that the missionaries weren't killed because of their proclamation of Christ. They weren't killed because of a rejection of the gospel. They were killed 
because of some cultural dynamics, because of some things that had been happening in the village, pressure that had come in from the oil companies, and all of it lit into this perfect powder keg of this moment where they had spears through them. And yet I stood here some, what, 60, 70 years later on that same beach seeing the fruit of, of the outworking of not only those women's faithfulness but generations of faithful missionaries that have continued to take the message. And so I think we've got to be careful to get even to the heart of why is this person rejecting? Do they not understand? Is it too big of a leap? And so the idea of, of not casting my pearl among swine, I think is, is a very, very rarely exercised thing that we are long-suffering, we are patient, we are passionate. But we have to step back at sometimes when someone is hostile and say, okay, the question is, how do we have the wisdom to tell the difference? I mean, I would think getting speared would be a pretty good example of when you need to move on. But not those ladies. You know, they had a wisdom and a, a willingness to give their own lives to carry the message forward. How do I know when I'm counseling an impossible case whether someone is is taking my counsel with disdain and rejecting it or if they're just struggling to apply it because their heart is sinful? How do I minister to hard people that seem hostile to the gospel? What, why is it that they're hostile? Are they hostile because of some past experience, something I need to know about? Or are they outright hostile because they hate Jesus Christ and they hate the church and it's time to move on? Fortunately, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He goes on in verse 7. He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks it will be opened. What man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf? Will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. If you then being evil know how to give these good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give what is good to those who ask Him. When we read this passage, the first thing we notice is, is that if I'm praying this prayer, I'm committed, Jesus assumes, I'm committed ultimately to His will. And, and He's changing tone. He's moving from prohibitions and warnings to a more positive tone. The kingdom standards are high. Like, like what we've been so far in this text, I'm like, man, I can't do this. Jesus knows that. He says, okay. But a disciple shouldn't be discouraged or anxious about living according to these principles. Ask, seek, knock. The idea here is an ongoing, persistent prayer life over a long period of time. That you and I appeal to the Lord as a habit of our life. It's, it's not a strange moment where I'm like, I'm so overwhelmed that I can't possibly figure this out. Now I'll go to prayer. It's an ongoing relationship. The song, step by step, you'll lead me and I will follow you all of my days. And it's interesting here that it is generic. He doesn't, he doesn't give us a specific. Uh, in the Lord's Prayer, we remember His teaching that, that it's rooted in thy will be done. That basically, when I think about not having a critical spirit, about not judging, about when to know to talk to someone and when to move on, I kind of think about we're out on this ledge. 
that I've got to have God come and deliver me because I don't know in my own human wisdom. I'm too limited to understand. But God knows that a lot of times we think about the, the material side of this prayer, but I don't think, I think in context, Jesus is talking about our ability to interact with others. That the basis of true prayer is union with Christ and His purposes rather than my selfish craving. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be giving. So for because everyone who asks. There's not a, there's not a direct object here. Finds what? Receives what? It's the idea that, that we're asking Him to lead us, and He will lead us. And everyone, everyone who asks. In this context, it's all of us who are citizens of the kingdom. This passage, this prayer, assumes that you have a relationship with God, that your priorities are His priorities, that you and I are praying for what we can't do. And then in verse 9, the idea that He's not going to give a rock when a child asks for bread, He's not going to give a snake when a child asks for a fish. God's not out to trick us. You know, rocks are worthless. God's not going to give you some worthless task. He's not going to not answer you. He's not going to trick you. And He's not going to deceive you. When you ask Him, He's going to give you something worthwhile, not a dangerous thing like a snake. That there's, there's sort of this dual purpose as we go to God. That, that yes, there is a sense in which God takes care of our physical needs. There's a sense in which there's a physical nature, but ultimately he's talking about how God answers our prayer, that he gives us good gifts. He doesn't necessarily give us what he wants. In Luke 11, he actually, instead of saying good gifts, he says to, to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So I not the Holy Spirit in the sense we're sealed when we become a believer, but the idea that if we ask Him for wisdom, the Holy Spirit will give us the wisdom we need for the situation that we're in. God keeps His promises. We can trust Him. That a lot of times our prayers are wanting what we want. When we align our will with His will, Ephesians 3, Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power within us. That how do I respond to this person in front of me? By trusting God to give you the wisdom for what's in front of you. E. Stanley Jones in A Song of Ascent says, Prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God and cooperation with that will. If I throw a boat hook from a boat and catch hold of the shore and pull. Do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but aligning my will to the will of God. Because sometimes He's going to ask us to do hard things. Sometimes that person in front of us is going to have more need than we realize or more need than we feel capable of taking care of. But God can give us both the wisdom and the strength to take care of that. So if, if we are going to live in community, you and I, with one another, if we're going to live in relation to the society around us, we've got to have His wisdom and His strength.
And then he goes in verse 12 and he says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way that you want to be treated. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus has been explaining true righteousness throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And in a lot of ways, this verse is sort of a soft ending to the sermon because next week we're going to see Jesus' conclusion in His call to respond. And so in this verse, we've got sort of a bookend back to chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them to fulfill them. How do we fulfill it? By loving God and loving others. And so this verse, do unto others, treat other people the way you want them to treat you, in a lot of ways uh, demonstrates the greater righteousness that Jesus calls us to in 520. So throughout this sermon, Jesus has emphasized the heart over the external actions. He's not trying to give us a set of external codes. I can't give you guys an agenda for the next week in the relationships you're in and how you need to deal with every one of them. It would be nice. The reality is we live in relationship with God and we live in relationship with each other. And just like I need that wisdom, I can't live up to it. Jesus has raised the bar so high. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That that I can't attain the righteousness that's unreachable. So I depend on God. I depend on Him in this circumstance for wisdom. I depend on Him with my salvation by trusting that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient for my sin. That it was sufficient to reconcile me to God. And that there's nothing I can do. Even this list of how we are to behave with each other is not a, a checklist for righteousness. Because you and I can't accomplish that checklist. Our only righteousness comes through our faith in Christ. Period. End of story. You can relax if you've placed your faith in Christ. But in everything, he says, treat people the way you want them to treat you. There's no expectation of a return. He doesn't say if they treat you well, treat them well. Do unto others as they did unto you. He says the way you want them to treat you, you treat others. End of story, period. Can you imagine just what this body would look like if we all could actually do this? If we all actually did this? The warmth, you contrast it to what's going on outside these walls. But after reading this passage, looking at verses 7 through 11, it's completely dependent on God producing that fruit through us. He doesn't tell us something that's impossible. I can make daily choices to consider others more important than ourselves. So as we experience goodness from God, we exhibit that goodness to our neighbor. For this is the law and the prophets. You know, as Jesus encourages us to persistently pray to the Father, He whispers the help and wisdom we receive from the Holy Spirit. We realize that we serve a triune God, Trinity that we are made in the image of God and God has eternally... Like, like when, when I look at this standard of, of friendships, of community, it feels so far above, but you realize, of course, there's been no sin within the Trinity, but the Trinity has lived in perfect unity, in perfect communion from, from eternity past. That we are made in the image of God 
when we think of the Trinity, we see the Father gives the Son and gives the Spirit. Jesus gave His life on the cross for us, for our sin. The Spirit reflects glory to the Father and the Son. The, the Trinity, God in His essence is self-giving. He in His essence lives in community. And that's our standard as men and women who are made in the image of God. That's who we were made to be. There's a sense in which we look at the world around us. Even the pagans look at people who are selfless, who lay down their lives, who consider others more important than themselves and say, man, that's what humans should be like. When we see that some benefactor gave a huge donation to some group, we're like, man, that's what humans are supposed to be like. We're supposed to be giving. Like no one has a bad word to say about Mother Teresa. Even people that don't even, younger people in here don't even know who she is. But, but, but there's a sense in which we all look at other centered people who aren't selfish and we say, man, that's what a human was supposed to be like. Scott Harrell talked about this in an article about the self-giving nature of God and he points to C.S. Lewis's great divorce. And, and in the great divorce, if you haven't read it, the, the, you're riding uh, basically on a bus ride that goes through hell and then through heaven. And, and when the bus ride goes through hell, it's not so much that the people are suffering, but they're just running around frantically. They're, they're caught up in their own activities. They're busy. And, and depending on how long they've been there, they become more and more translucent, see-through basically to say they've becoming less and less human as they focus more and more on who they are. But then as the bus goes to heaven, it's the land of the solid people. There's a density, there's a, there's a seriousness, there's a health. And I think as Jesus has walked us through the Sermon on the Mount and He, and he brings us to this point that says, do unto others as you would want them to do under you. He's talking about the fact that you and I were made to be self-giving that we were made to love others, that we were made, you know, in this passage, to be enough in each other's lives that we can deal lovingly with one another when there's sin, and that we approach God for wisdom and how to do that. But ultimately, it all sums up in this idea that do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love God and love your neighbor is not an abstract idea. Jesus has been spelling it out verse by verse by verse, and that's what we're called to. It's not the anemic, weak view of Christianity that our world has. This is actually robust, solid humanity that you and I are invited to participate in and encouraged that He is here with us and enables us to do it. That, that we are committed as a body to one another. That we're committed to having hard conversations when it's needed, without hypocrisy without a critical judging spirit, that we exercise a wisdom towards outsiders who would seek to do us harm, and that we would trust God for the wisdom as we ask Him. And then finally, we love one another, that we treat other people the way that they, uh, we would want them to treat us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for such a high bar that uh, is impossible for us to live up to.
how do we live in community with sinners? Lord, you don't leave us with some ethereal idea or some self-seeking purpose, but you equip us both with, with words and wisdom and how to do that uh, and with wisdom and strength in our hearts as your spirit enables us. Lord, help us apply this text. In your son's name, amen.